Mighty God and Everlasting Father, we come before you this morning as we desire to know the eternal logos better, Christ the Word. As we study this chapter, Genesis 24, we ask that you would demonstrate to us the nature of your providence. We ask that you would work into our heart and mind the things that would help us to see Christ more clearly, sovereign messianic king who is ruling and reigning from heaven even now. We ask, Father, that you would aid us, that you would give us unction this morning, that you would help us to hear well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We will read the entire chapter of Genesis 24, one of the longest in the book. Now, Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Please, put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman would not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, for all his master's goods were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water at evening time. And the time the women go out to draw water. Then he said, The Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, Please let your pitcher, please let down your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, Drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. And it happened, before he had finished speaking, that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Now the young woman was very beautiful to behold, a virgin, no man had known her. And she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So she said, Drink, my lord. Then she quickly let down her pitcher down to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they had finished drinking. Then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water, and drew for all his camels. And the man, wondering at her, remained silent, so as to know whether the Lord has made his journey prosperous or not. So it was. When the camels had finished drinking, that the man took a golden nose ring weighing half a shekel 
and two bracelets for a wrist, weighing ten shekels of gold, and said, Whose daughter are you? Tell me, please, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? So she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, Milcah's son, whom she bore to Nahor. Moreover, she said to him, We have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge. Then the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So the young woman ran and told her mother's household these things. Now Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban, and Laban ran out to the man by the well. So it came to pass, when he saw the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists, and when he heard the words of his sister Rebekah, saying, Thus the man spoke to me, that he went to the man, and there he stood by the camels at the well. And he said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. And the man came to the house, and he unloaded the camels, and provided strong feed for the camels, and water to wash his feet, and the feet of the men who were with him. Food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have told you about my errand. And he said, Speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master greatly, and he has become great. And he has given him flocks and herd, silver and gold, male and female servants, and camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him he has given all that he has. Now my master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughter of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my family and take a wife for my son. And I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord, before whom I walk, will send his angel with you and prosper your way, and you shall take a wife for my son from my family and my, from my father's house. You will be clear from this oath when you arrive among my family. For if they will not give her to you, then you will be released from my oath. And this day I came to the well and said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, if you will now prosper the way in which I go, behold, I stand by the well of water. And it shall come to pass that when the virgin comes out to draw water, and I say to her, Please give me a little water from your pitcher to drink. And she says to me, Drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. But before I had finished speaking, in my heart there was Rebekah coming out with her pitcher on her shoulder. And she went down to the well and drew water. And I said to her, Please let me drink. And she made haste and let her pitcher down from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give your camels a drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels a drink also. Then I asked her, and she said, Whose daughter are you? And she said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the nose ring on her nose, and the bracelets on her wrists, and I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord, and blessed the God of my master Abraham, who had led me in the way of truth, to take the daughter of my master's brother for his son. Now if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me, and if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you either good or bad. Here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go, and let her be your master's son's wife, as the Lord has spoken. And it came to pass, when Abraham's servant heard their words, that he worshipped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. Then the servant brought out jewelry of silver, jewelry of gold and clothing, and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and her mother. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and stayed all night. Then they arose in the morning and said, Send me away to my master. But her brother and mother said, Let the young woman stay with us a few days, at least ten. After that she may go. 
And he said to them, Do not hinder me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away so that I may go to my master. So they said, We will call the young woman and ask her personally. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become the mother of thousands of ten thousands. And may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. Then Rebekah and her maids arose, and they rode on the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Now Isaac came from the way of Beer Lahai Roy, for he dwelt in the south. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening. And he lifted his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. Then Rebekah lifted her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. For she had said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother's mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us. This particular section of scripture is divided up into four different sections. The commission, the faithfulness of the servant, the success, and then the marriage and the consummation. Abraham is continually under the guidance and direction of blessing. He is blessed, the scripture says, adored by God, literally. Abraham commissions his eldest servant, subsequent to this blessing, perhaps Eleazar, to fetch a wife for Isaac. The oath of life and death is taken. The servant's hand is placed under Abraham's thigh, under his seat of that which is procreative. This is the sign of the strongest oath. The loins were a sign of power. That is where you made people. And so he swore by Yahweh, the Lord, that he would do all that Abraham had specifically said. And Abraham instructs him not to take away from the Canaanites, rather from his own family. And the servants question, what if the woman is not willing to follow me? And he asks, may I take Isaac along? May I bring Isaac back to the land? which you are sending me. But Abraham did not want him to do that, which would go against what God had so given him already in that he was to come out from his father's house. He was not to return to his father's house. He was sending his servant and him alone. Rather, God would go before him. He will send his angel before you. That's pivotal for the text. God will go before you, so you won't need Isaac. If the woman doesn't follow you, you'll be released from the oath. If the woman does follow you, the angel of the Lord, as Abraham had said, would have gone before him. And so the servant swears that he will follow this oath until its end or until he's released from it. Then we find the faithfulness in 10 to 27. The servant travels to Nahor's town with goods, with supplies, 
with a very large dowry, enough not only to give Rebecca, but also to give Rebecca's brother and family. He prays at the well, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day. And so he lays out what he would like God to demonstrate providentially, to demonstrate that this is the woman. That he would undoubtedly see God's hand or the angel that was supposed to go before him working in his midst. And it happened before he had finished speaking that behold, Rebecca, she came out with a pitcher on her shoulder. She does everything that he asked the Lord to show him. Even to the point that the text says, and the man wondered. He was amazed that even before he had finished speaking, and everything that he asked was done to the letter. He remained silent. He didn't give anything away, and he wanted to see if she would actually fulfill everything that he just asked. Remember, he hadn't talked to her. He had talked to the Lord, and so she does. And as a result of doing everything, and in his excitement, he gives her gifts of gold. He's serious about his task, and he knows this is the one. He's not going to waste any time. But then he bows his head, and he worships God, which is a proper and fitting response for seeing the demonstration of God's providence before his very eyes. God had answered his prayer before he had finished it. God had not forsaken his mercy and his truth and his faithfulness to Abraham. And he attributes it all to the Lord. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. Then we find the success in his mission. Rebecca brings the servant to her father's home. His camels are attended to, but he won't even take food or hospitality until he's finished with his report and his petition is made known to them. He reports everything which Abraham had asked and said, as well as the, the prayer that he prayed itself, and even the conversation that he had with Rebecca. Laban and Bethuel cannot dispute what God has done here. Even they say this is for the Lord. The confirmation caused the servant to worship again. And so he gave gifts to Rebecca the dowry. Laban and Bethuel wanted to be with their daughter for a week and a half, but the servant asked that his journey would not be hindered since God had done all of this and intended that she go back. So they asked Rebecca if she wants to leave immediately. Rebecca is asked, and she says that she will. On their way back, the fourth section, we find the marriage and the consummation of the marriage in verses 60 to 67. And leaving, they blessed her. And that she would be the mother of thousands, tens of thousands, and of great descendants. Little did they know they were blessing her exactly according to the Lord's plan. Isaac, we find, going to a field to meditate. And in the course of his meditation, a beautiful woman in a caravan approach. Rebecca asks the servant who this is. And the servant tells her, it's Isaac. So she veils herself as is customary until the wedding night. And the report is made to Isaac. Then he takes her into his mother's tent. 
he gains authority over her. She becomes his wife, and he loves her. He consummates the wedding and union with her, and thus Isaac is comforted after his mother's death. And so the motherly aspect of the covenant continues on. Critical to the text itself is this idea that the angel of God goes before the servant. The propagation of the line of the seed of the woman continues through Isaac and Rebekah, and yet all of this is founded upon the overwhelming, powerful aspect to the passage of God's providence. The Holy Spirit in this passage shows us the providence of God first over the entirety of situations that people go through and does this cunningly as we begin to venture into the idea of election, which we will be covering for the next eight weeks henceforth. But this passage providentially sets up the next chapter, chapter 25, in dealing with Jacob and Esau. God is not only providentially overseeing and governing everything, the big picture, but also the individual events that will ultimately culminate in the idea of what election is about, which is why Paul will quote Jacob and Esau and use them as examples, as does Malachi, for all intents and purposes, in God's particular saving providence over people. But here, God deals with the big picture before he deals with the electing picture. Providence. Pro video. The Latin means to be in front of, and video means to see. That God sees all things comprehensively before him. Everything is in full view. Of the attributes of God, the providence of God, the work practically for most people is often unappealing. They don't like the idea that God is providentially governing everything. And providence is a doctrine which derives many people from the throne of grace rather than driving them to it. Why is that so? Because people are often like Adam and Eve. When they sin, they want to run and hide and have their own privacy without, as Sartre thought, a cosmic voyeur peeking through a keyhole into the affairs of their solitary place. Simply, people want to be their own gods. But God is not simply a spectator in his providence. It is not like he is a person or a crowd of people watching a movie in which they have no interaction before that which they see is going before them. Providence is much more than just knowing things for God. Providence is also his active involvement with what he sees as governor over that which he has sovereign power. Christians are not deists. Deists are those who believe that God created the world and then lets it run off just like a great watch. The watchmaker makes the watch, he winds it up and he lets it go and then has no further interaction with the watch. Well, Christians are not deists in that way. Rather, God providentially sees, governs, 
decrees, is involved with, and rules and reigns in everything. This is the reign of God's providence. The angel of the Lord prepared the very way that the servant's providence would come forth. God rules and reigns through his providence. What does he govern? He governs everything. Everything is under the scope of God's government. The scope of his purpose and plan in creation covers everything. For example, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? Matthew 10:29. To fall to the ground literally means to jump. The sparrows don't jump around without God's governing power, without his will willing their jumping. Matthew 10:30 says, "But the very hairs of your head are all numbered." The scope of God's providence covers even the hairs of our head that every one of them are numbered. God providentially watches over all nations. He watches over all tribes and peoples. Acts 17.26 says, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. God's plan is so great that he even decides the boundaries of where people will live. From the smallest atom, to the worker ants, to the Serengeti lions in Africa, to princes and kings, God rules over them all and is intrinsically involved in every aspect of their life. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? Why do they do that? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens, though, shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Why? Because, Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. God providentially rules and governs the entire universe. He is the cosmic king who rules and reigns over all of creation. Not only does the king see all, but he is involved in ordering it all according to his purposeful plan. It's like you've heard probably the analogy. The rider on the chariot and the horse stumbled. And because he stumbled, they lost the war. How does that go? The war was lost because the horse stumbled. But the horse ultimately stumbled because a nail fell out of the horseshoe and ultimately stumbled the horse. As far back as all of those things could happen, he didn't get to his commanders in time because the horse stumbled. They didn't win that battle because the horse stumbled. They didn't win the war ultimately because the horse stumbled. All because of why? A nail. Well, God 
providentially oversees all of those things. And if so desires that the nail fall out of the horseshoe of the horse, so it is. The power of providence is exemplified and seen in our passage very vividly. It's the tool that Moses uses in this passage as an emphasis, as an introduction, as a, a, a little bit of a subtle silence, and then he ends with the entire idea of God's providential rule and reign. Abraham's servant, when he questions Abraham about taking Isaac, is given the reply, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. Providence is the introduction to the passage. Moses is saying that everything in this passage, though we're seeing a narrative, happens because of the providence of God. Not that God was just seeing things going on. He wasn't just spectating. He was making sure that Rebecca, with her pitcher, before he had even finished the very prayer, which God would have providentially had him pray anyway, finished, she came out and did exactly according to God's purpose. And that he is the primary cause of everything going on. That's going to be a dangerous statement in a moment because people are ultimately going to run right to sin and say, well, if that's the case, then God is the primary cause of sin as well. We'll talk about that momentarily. Before he even finishes praying, Rebecca walks out. It's all planned accordingly. The reader is privileged to see the events unfold exactly the way that God had ordered them. So many things could have happened along the way. The servant could have been robbed. He could have gone to the wrong entrance of the city. He could have gone to a different well. Laban and Bethuel could have refused. Rebecca could have said no. Isaac could have despised the woman. Whatever else you could have thought up could have happened. But everything was ordered to the T. Even Laban and Bethuel said the thing comes from the Lord. It was unmistakable. And they didn't just say the gods. They said this thing comes from Yahweh. How does providence work? How can God order all these things, yet all these things happen by the will of the creature that God would be providential over such things? Well, he ordains, he governs, but he also uses what we call secondary causes to affect them. A grandson is a grandson because of the father, but because of the grandfather. The grandfather actually didn't do necessarily anything with the husband and wife of the son to actually create the grandson. His father and wife, they did that. But the grandfather is the primary cause of the grandson being alive in the analogy. Or, for instance, the rain is ordained by God to fall. And God providentially causes the rain to fall. And the rain falls, and the grass gets wet. Well, what is it that makes the grass wet? God? No. God doesn't have the property of wetness. The rain has the property of wetness. The rain makes the grass wet. But God so orchestrated everything that needed to happen so that the rain would fall, and thus the grass would get wet. God was the primary cause of the rain, and the rain was the secondary cause of wetness. And 
whatever, wherever, whatever you are doing, you are under the direct ordination of God's providence, either through his primary cause or secondary causes. The primary providential cause of our passage says that Isaac is going to marry Rebekah. That's what's going to happen. And here in our passage, we find all the secondary causes in effect through the faithfulness of the servant, the faithfulness of Laban and Bethuel, the faithfulness of Rebekah, and the faithfulness of Isaac that God so providentially manipulated that his will would be done. And it is imperative for anything to function in the world that you have to understand that God is governing everything. There's nothing out of his power. Think of Jesus Christ and him alone. Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. God primarily determined all the causes of Christ's affliction and crucifixion. He caused the crucifixion by the hand of secondary causes, which were those wicked men. A rock could have fallen on him while he was in the wilderness. Bands of thieves could have attacked and killed him. The Pharisees could have stoned him or thrown him over a cliff. That's a remarkable passage, is it not? He's standing in their midst. They want to throw him over the cliff, and he just walks right through them. They don't do anything. He was guarded under the direct guise of God's providential hand. Describing how such things happen is through God's providence. God's providence in the manner in which he was born, in the manner in which he was raised up, in the manner in which he lived. God providentially had to be watching over every single aspect of Christ's life for everything to work according to his sovereign plan that was set before the world began. From his life, from his death, to his resurrection, up to his ascension, God providently watched over everything. But we think that for some reason that God then is disattached from the rest of things that don't pertain specifically to salvation. First, everything pertains to that. Yet second, we should be able to see providence in our daily lives. Can you look at the past week and see the providence of God at work? The car, job, shopping, children, relatives, friends. If you cannot see the providence of the Lord Jesus at work in your life, something is dreadfully wrong. Because even these pagans that worshipped other gods, Laban and Bethuel, saw clearly that this is from Yahweh. We should all be seeing everywhere God's invisible hand working in our life. From the least thing to the greatest thing, from the least detail, from the smallest detail, everything from our greatest trial and tribulation we will, that we'll ever face, we should see God's providential and invisible hand working through it all, no matter how big or small it is. The providence of God is the strength of the Christian, knowing that Christ has 
all authority in heaven and on earth. He governs everything accordingly, from the smallest sparrow to the hairs on your head, to the way that the celestial bodies in the heavens spin and move. Everything is under his sovereign power. Providence itself is really where we would go with theology by saying that it's practical theology. Maybe you have a new friend. Christ has brought them your way. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe you have a new job. Christ removed you from one, brought you to another. Someone could have a baby. Providence delivered them into their arms. Maybe you're going through a great trial. What a comfort it is to know that Christ, the Messianic King, has delivered that trial to your front doorstep, specially ordered for you from the foundations of the world for your betterment. Your husband, your wife, they're especially given to you, just like God did for Isaac. And thus, in seeing anything that goes on, in seeing any providential part that our eyes might catch a glimpse of, we should give praise to God. Not only do we see the providence of God in the passage, but we also see the praise which is due to God by the servant as he sees that providence being laid out. Because of the very fact that God ordered everything, we see twice in the passage that the servant praises God. All things give us then cause to praise God for his mighty works in our midst. And every single one of us is here today because God ordered it from the foundations of the world. Whatever seat you have, whatever clothes you wear, the reason you got here, all of it was God-given. Do you feel like you're manipulated? Do you feel like God twisted your arm? Not at all. God so orders things and so demonstrates his governing power over creation that we don't feel that way. And that we demonstrate a choice from one thing to another. To wear a particular shirt or not. To drink a particular drink or not. To sit in a particular seat or not. And yet we know that even the hairs of our heads God has numbered. And even the sparrows don't jump around on the ground without God's will being done. We should see the ever-abounding power of Christ running through the entire course of our life. And we should fulfill those causes every day. Imagine how different life would be if we were looking regularly, as the servant did, for the manner in which God's providence is working, instead of just taking up the difficulties of life as difficulties, or the cause of the day as just simply the cause of the day. But really seeing that the providence of God is being worked out in that day for our good and for our sanctification. The servant wouldn't eat a morsel of bread or have anything to do with hospitality until he served his master, which was really God. He knew that earthly enjoyments are not more important than heavenly responsibility. It's because... He was thoroughly acquainted with the providence of God. How could he not, while living in Abraham's home, and all of the things that God had richly blessed Abraham with? Well, Christ still desires to use people like he does, Abraham's servant, who praise him for his providence. 
For everyone who works for the Lord, who works faithfully, they will be able to see God's providence in their life. And we should be keen, and we should have keen eyes to see that providence. When was the last time you praised Christ for his providence in your life? When was the last time that you saw him work clearly and succinctly? Was God not providentially working yesterday? How far do you have to think back? Is providence a sweet thought to you, knowing that God rules and reigns over everything? Providence, the thought of it, humbled the servant. He wondered, he bowed and worshipped, and he testified, the Lord led me, Yahweh led me. And thus we know that even though a man's heart plans his way, as Proverbs 16.9 says, the Lord directs his steps. We should not have to think back very far to see God's providential hand working in our life, knowing full well that the entire chapter is based on Understanding that the angel of the Lord was working on behalf of his elect servants. Thus, we as God's elect servants have the angel of the Lord, have Christ himself working on our behalf in everything. Think about the rest of the day that you have today. What providential things will happen today? What things will you have a keen eye on? Days can't possibly then be ho-hum because God's providence is working. It can't possibly be just another day. It can't possibly be the same old thing. God's providence is working on our behalf. Do we see it as clearly as the servant did? Do we see it as clearly as Laban and Bethuel did? Let's be reminded of God's providence in everything. Let's pray together. Mighty Lord, you are the governor of all things. Not only have you created them, but your hand is governing them all. We ask, O oh God, that you would be merciful in helping us to understand that not only do you govern the universe but with everything, even sin, just like the rain. You utilize secondary causes to effectuate your desires on the earth. You are responsible for no evil, Lord. We know that everything that you do is good and just, according to the testimony of Scripture. But yet we know that you govern everything. All things around us, our trials and our tribulations, to even the smallest details. We ask, O oh Lord, that if you would take so much time to even number the hairs on our head, that you would work on our behalf, Lord, to providentially guide us and allow us to see clearly all the great things that you would have us to do in this life as your elect servant. We pray, O oh God, that we would consecrate ourselves to you and that we would, O oh Lord, always be guided by our providence as clearly seen before our very eyes every day. And we so ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stillwater's Revival Books is now located at PuritanDownloads.com.
It's your worldwide online Reformation home for the very best in free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, MP3s, and videos. For much more information on the Puritans and Reformers, including the best free and discounted classic and contemporary books, MP3s, digital downloads, and videos, please visit Stillwater's Revival Books at PuritanDownloads.com. Stillwater's Revival Books also publishes the Puritan Hard Drive, the most powerful and practical Christian study tool ever produced. All thanks and glory be to the mercy, grace, and love of the Lord Jesus Christ for this remarkable and wonderful new Christian study tool. The Puritan Hard Drive contains over 12,500 of the best Reformation books, MP3s, and videos ever gathered onto one portable Christian study tool. An extraordinary collection of Puritan, Protestant, Calvinistic, Presbyterian, Covenanter, and Reformed Baptist resources. It's fully upgradable and it's small enough to fit in your pocket. The Puritan hard drive combines an embedded database containing many millions of records with the most amazing and extraordinary custom Christian search and research software ever created. The Puritan Hard Drive has been produced to assist you in the fascinating and exhilarating spiritual, intellectual, familial, ecclesiastical, and societal adventure that is living the Christian life. It has been specifically designed so that you might more faithfully know, serve, and love the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as to help you to do all you can to bring glory to His great name. If you want to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, then the Puritan hard drive is for you. Visit PuritanDownloads.com today for much more information on the Puritan hard drive and to take advantage of all the free and discounted Reformation and Puritan books, MP3s, and videos that we offer at Stillwater's Revival Books.